Hi gang, thanks for downloading this classic episode of News Fighters. Just a reminder, if you're looking for new original episodes of News Fighters, they're now over on the Irrational Fear podcast feed. So search for Irrational Fear on your podcasting app or go to irrationalfear.com for all new episodes of News Fighters. In the meantime, enjoy this classic News Fighters episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is News Fighter. So you don't have to. With Dylan Behan. Yes, hello everyone. Welcome to News Fighters. It's our summer classic replay series of all classic moments you might have missed. But before I get to this week's episode, uh, the big news, if you haven't heard, is uh, wherever you're listening to this episode is not going to have new episodes anymore from February. That's right. News Fighters is moving to the Irrational Fear podcast feed. So to get new episodes of News Fighters, uh, from February, when we're going monthly, jump on over to irrationalfear.com, find Irrational Fear in your podcasting app, and listen to us there. Hit subscribe there. Also shutting down the Newsfighters Patreon. So all our Patreons, jump on over uh, to patreon.com slash irrationalfear if you want to support this show and all the other great uh, comedy projects that uh, my friend, old mate, Dan Illick, uh, is always working on. He's been a great supporter of News Fighters over the years. I've been a part of Irrational Fear pretty much since day one, uh, and it's great that News Fighters will be joining the Irrational Fear family in February. So just a reminder, uh, jump on over and hit subscribe to us on the Irrational Fear podcast feed. But now, let's cast our mind back to May of this year, when uh, you might remember there was a federal election on. Yes, this week we're going to relive our election night recap episode uh, from May 22nd, uh, which I released just hours uh, after uh, Anthony Albanese had uh, been on stage just down the street from me at the Canterbury Hulston Park RSL in all its glamour and uh, claimed victory. I uh, put out this episode I'm playing today, uh, recapping why Anthony Albanese won and Scott Morrison Lost, And then after that, stick around. I'm also replaying an interview with Tom Greenwell, co-author of the book Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. I released this the week before the election, uh, and it talked about something I don't think got enough attention during the election campaign, which was the education policy of Australia and all the places uh, we've gone wrong. Bit of a bit of a horror story, actually. I don't don't know why you want to watch those slasher films when you can just read about the state of Australian education. It's quite scary. Anyways, uh, that's it from me for now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our classic summer replays. (laughs) 
Yes, hello everyone. Welcome to this special Sunday night post-election episode of News Fighters. News Fighters, home of the screen of dreams. I'm your host, Dylan Bain, the Anthony Green of Wacky Clips. Of course, tonight, the big story that's made shockwaves around the world. The World Health Organization has confirmed 100 cases of monkeypox in a dozen countries. No, 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 not that story, this story. Change at the top, down under. It appears the Labour Party will form Australia's new government. Australia is getting a new Prime Minister. Conservative Scott Morrison is unseated after his party loses several seats. Incoming Prime Minister Anthony Albanese promises to unite the nation after ousting the long-standing Conservative government. And speaking of overseas, nobody's happier than the French, it seems. The outgoing of Foreign Minister of France was rejoicing, still fuming over Scott Morrison's call to rip up that French submarine deal, a move he called notorious incompetence. La défaite du premier, Maurice, premier ministre Morrison me convient très bien. The translation, Scott Morrison's defeat, suits him well. Anyways, in the end, it seems that Labor's ambitious election agenda resonated with voters. What was that uh, What was that uh, agenda again? Uh, give us a crack. While the election message from Morrison and the Liberals in the dying days of their campaign, you hate me but vote for me anyway, didn't seem to work at all. You may not like everything we've done. You may not like me that much. But that's not the point. Personally, I think what uh, Morrison did in the final week of their campaign uh, probably rubbed voters the wrong way. He almost injured a child. Scott Morrison crashed tackling a young boy. This little player accidentally knocked over by the Prime Minister. He probably came off a little better than I did last night because I hit the ground with quite a thud. Should have been a penalty. And for that dangerous tackle, the Liberals get three years in the sin bin, at least. While writing Albanese off for most of the campaign, today the media was quite jubilant. Australia votes for change. A political earthquake. Anthony Albanese to be sworn in tomorrow as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. And you are waking up to the news that Anthony Albanese has been elected the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. The voters have spoken and they've spoken loud. Yes, the voters have spoken loud. But what exactly did they have to say to the major parties? The primary vote tells a deeper story, the decline of both major parties, the worst result by Conservative forces since Federation, and Labor remarkably going backwards on its last dismal result to post its worst number since 1934, which means it was not the first choice of nearly seven out of ten voters. Preferences are what's pushed Labor to victory here. The two-party preferred swing at the moment is 3.5% to Labor, putting them ahead 52 to 48%. In fact, not too far off where the polls had suggested. Yes, that's right. Labor's primary vote has gone backwards, but somehow they've won the election, which means the real winner of this election was preferential voting. And yes, Anthony Albanese, what was the uh, percentage of the two-party preferred swing again? I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I'm not sure what it is. Ah, close enough. You won anyway. And weren't the voters enthusiastic to be out voting for their favourite parties on Saturday? Two leaders mm-hmm. they, they, they couldn't row a boat without, you know, without tipping it over. Not one of them are even looking at doing anything to help anyone. No, it's not only the current government. It's 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 all parties. They're not that great when you look at the quality of the people there. It's too many politicians. I'm only interested in one victory today, and that's... Dragons later on the Sabo. It's got to get in and vote. It's democratic requirement. Honestly, I'm just here to vote, so I don't, I don't, I don't get, um, I don't get fined. Yes, all those people sounded like they really didn't want to be out voting, just like Channel 10's Peter Van Onselen, who forgot to vote. And <laughs> done for us, which is fantastic. Sandra, yes. I just realised I forgot to vote. 
What? What? Yeah, I have to pay the fine. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yes, when it came time to pick a side this election, Channel 10's Peter Van Onselen chose the side of crime. Meanwhile, all the people at the polls who admitted to voting liberal sounded super enthusiastic for their ambitious policy agenda. I'm not that political. Yeah. Yeah, not that political? No. How are you going to determine who you're going to vote for? Um, I usually vote liberal. Uh, I voted for liberal. And why is that? Uh, I don't know. I just, they're, already in, they're already in now. Might as well keep them. I voted for liberal. Um, yeah. Who did you vote for? I also voted for liberal. Yeah. But that's just because my family's voted for them. That's the same with me. But of course, the main reason most Australians show up to the polls on Saturday isn't to vote. No, 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 no. It's to get a delicious meat sausage. Sure, the fate of the nation hangs in the balance, but something else major is going on today, and that is the sausage sizzles right around the country as Australians try to decide exactly how they like their democracy sausages. It's definitely worth coming out to vote for for a democracy sausage. Democracy sausage. sausage. It was great. Does uh, onion go on top? Or on the bottom? I think we'd say on the bottom, yeah, for safety reasons. Where do you put the onion? Um, I like it on top. If I get a sausage, do I have to eat it from the side or can I eat it the normal way? I strongly suggest you just eat it the normal way because you'll get a lot of flack if you bite it from the side. <laughs> what is your favourite part of the election? But it wasn't just sausage lovers winning out this election, it was also the Greens and independents. And there'll be a powerful crossbench with voters putting more independents and Greens MPs into Parliament than ever before. And for the Greens, their best election result ever. The big winners of the night were the Teal Independents and the Greens, who will lift the number on the crossbench in Parliament from six to a likely 15. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Wow, hard to believe a country that's been constantly either on fire or neck deep in water for the last three years finally voted for more action on climate change, but there you go. And of course, according to Clive Palmer, this election result means we're in for an economic apocalypse. Obviously a big emphasis will now be on climate change. What does that mean for business? Well, it really means the devastation of most of Australia's business and production our exports and it certainly is a grave concern for the coal industry, uh, for energy and also for um, our farming industries. It's Clive Palmer on Sky News there where he also gave a hint about uh, what the next big conspiracy theory is. His United Australia Party is going to be pushing the next three years. Controversy today, uh, you had problems in Petrie and of course Craig Kelly, yeah. your leader, also copped uh, well, some was, stuff from the ACT. Tell us about it. It was very disappointing, The um, some of the AC. Uh, um, AEC officials took home the votes with them when they went home to their house and uh, play, were playing around with them. We've got it all on video and our, our candidate followed them home. So it's a bit of a worry when you think the AEC is tampering with votes. Yes, of course Clive Palmer's going to say the election was stolen from him. He spent $100 million and all he got is a bunch of crappy billboards that always got graffitied over. Now onto the election night TV coverage, and as always, there was a lot of live crosses with bad audio. Yeah, look, this is the best outcome we've written. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're having a very bad audio issue there with Trent Zimmerman, so we can't hear what he was saying. And you can tell the results were more or less unexpected because even Anthony Green got flustered, even more than usual. Uh, let's go over to Anthony Green, who can take us through some of the results in Queensland. Uh, that's news to me, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll factor in a few more... Sorry, I hit the wrong button. It's the first time all night I've hit the wrong button. There you go. <laughs> Currently, the Greens are on track to win Richmond. Uh, no, that's not correct. Actually... <laughs> <laughs>
Well, well, Galt, I think there's been some confusion here. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a very complex night when even Anthony Green's brain has been stretched. And it's also not election night without a bunch of overly ambitious or just plain stupid calls at the beginning of the night, like this one from the Coalition's Jane Hume. This is going to be an historic Liberal victory, Liberal national victory, I should calling say. It yeah. I'm calling, calling it early. I'm calling it early. I'm <laughs> this one from Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce, who was sure that things were just about to swing back their way. I, I think you're going to be in for a big surprise. I think that their pollsters have got it wrong again. I think that people keep their views to themselves. And over a nine, two-time election loser Labor's Bill Shorten wouldn't say whether Albanese had had a good campaign until he'd seen the results. Bill Shorten, has this been a good campaign by Anthony Albanese? Absolutely, but let's be, let's just say it straight here because the viewers can work it out. What defines a good campaign is if you win or lose. And if Labor wins, then it's a good campaign. And if Labor we loses... Ran a, we ran a great campaign last time, but we lost. So at the end of the day... <laughs> also on Nine, former future Liberal leader Julie Bishop had some hard-hitting questions about Labor's agenda for Bill Shorten. Bill, I have got a text here. I've got to share it with you. I mean, this is breaking news. Chloe wants to know, what are you getting her for her birthday tomorrow? Tomorrow. It's an, uh, I want you to announce well, it on it's national a labor, TV. It's a, labor it's a surprise. It? I have got it something, though. Uh, it is a surprise. Well, it's going to be you in government, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm sure that'll please her too. <laughs> if your wife hates you being a minister, why does she marry you? This doesn't sound like it's going to work, Bill Shorten. Meanwhile, over on the ABC, a former future Labor leader Tanya Plibersek seemed uh, somewhat deflated that Albo seemed to be winning. Tanya, what are you what are you thinking? Yeah, no. look, I, there's still quite a few on our too close to call list, yeah. so. Um, you could probably say yay. <laughs> I'm feeling so much gay inside. Happy? I can't Are tell you happy? how much gay there is in here. Just trying not to get ahead of ourselves. Yes, you can just see her dreams of Tanya 2025 flying out the window. And over on Channel 7, they hired Christopher Pine to be on their panel for some reason, who, as always, just talked complete nonsense filler to fill in the airtime. I mean, I, I kind of thought you might with the Greens have an, a, a, the, the majority in the Senate, but I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the Senate takes longer to count, That's obviously. True. I've yeah. only just had having a quick look at it. I'm searching for something to talk about other than the fact that Labor Party is the election. And it wouldn't be election night without some truth bombs. And the best one was from Simon Birmingham over in the ABC, who threw Scott Morrison's captain's pick of transphobic candidate Catherine Deves under the bus. You think you'd say she should have been disendorsed? Um, well, it would have been far preferable if she'd not been endorsed in the first place. Should then. she have been disendorsed? Um, in hindsight, yes, um, because that would have cauterised the issue during the campaign. In the lesson to be learned is that very important lesson. Australians respect others. Australians are tolerant of diversity. And of course the Liberals are embracing tolerance and respect now because they don't want to get kicked while they're down. And it looks like Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has lost his seat, but that didn't stop him from trying to take credit for saving the economy during the COVID pandemic. A grown man came up to me and just burst into tears. And he said just thank you. He said thank you for saving my small business. Thank you for saving my staff. We couldn't have done it without JobKeeper and all the other economic support you provided. And that man's name was Jerry Harvey. And then he bought me a yacht. But of course, the biggest concession speech of the night was from outgoing Prime Minister Scott Morrison. <clears throat> Sorry, I just want to say that again. Outgoing Prime Minister Scott Morrison. 
who returned to a theme uh, from his victory speech three years ago. Three years ago, I stood before you and I said I believed in miracles. <laughs> I still believe in miracles. There's another great miracle which I want to give thanks for tonight. And that miracle is Job's website, seek.com.au. Yes. In fact, I uh, think I have a clip here of uh, Scott Morrison scrolling through seek.com.au later in the week. Um, that's not my job. That's not my job. It's not my job to do that. Morrison, of course, took one last chance to thank aspirational voters. And that's what I wish for them. That's what I wish for this country, that Australians will always be able to realise the aspirations that they have for themselves and for their family and their community. Aspiration was also a theme that Anthony Albanese talked up in uh, his victory speech an hour later, but with a slightly different twist. It says a lot about our great country that the son of a single mum who was a disability pensioner who grew up in public housing down the road in Camperdown... can stand before you tonight as Australia's Prime Minister. And I hope there are families in public housing watching this tonight. Because I want every parent to be able to tell their child, no matter where you live or where you come from, in Australia the doors of opportunity are open to us all. I want to find that common ground where together we can plant our dreams. To unite around our shared love of this country, our shared faith in Australia's future, our shared values of fairness and opportunity and hard work and kindness to those in need. Well, after 10 years of Liberal government, I'm used to aspiration just being like tradies wanting a third investment property. I'm not not used to it applying to everyone, Albo. This is, this is going to take a bit of getting used to. And after Albanese's very inspiring aspiration and opportunities for everyone speech, Liberal Senator Holly Hughes on 10 was like, boo. Uh, what do you think of our new Prime Minister? Well, not much, and I must say that, and I didn't think much of it before him. I didn't think much of him before tonight, and I'm yet to see something that makes me think any more of him. Uh, he's got three years now to prove to the country that uh, he will be across his briefs, he'll remember the detail, he'll represent the country uh, so that we can be proud. Geez, a simple congratulations would have sufficed. Can someone tell Holly Hughes the uh, election campaign's over and she can actually stop attacking her opponents for five seconds, if that's okay? So with Morrison stepping down and Josh Frydenberg gone, what's next for the Liberal Party? Josh Frydenberg's loss almost guarantees Peter Dutton will take over as the next Liberal leader. Former Defence Minister Peter Dutton is the early favourite to become opposition leader. Yes, but Peter Dutton actually sounded kind of excited for Albanese winning. We have uh, incredible days ahead of us. And so what can we expect from the coalition in opposition? Well... According to National Senator Matt Canavan, they actually need to go more hardline and right-wing and denialist on climate change. When we make climate change an environmental issue, as we have done by signing up to net zero, we lose, including in the city seats. When we make it an economic issue, which we did in 2010, 2013 and 2019, we win and we also win in the inner city seats. Because once you surrender, once you surrender to the Greens and say, yeah, net zero is the right destination, then you're just arguing about the timing. Meanwhile, over on Sky News, Rowan Dean reckons that the reason the coalition lost because they were too left wing. We will see our living standards crushed, our livelihoods damaged, our cultural institutions devastated, our kids' future prosperity decimated because... Despite every warning we gave you, 
Scott Morrison and the bedwetters betrayed their conservative base. And then they all lost their seats. Yes, of course. That's exactly what happened. And then the day after the election, Scott Morrison had some guests over to Kirribilli House for some commiseration drinks. And you'll never guess what they were. Wife Jenny was looking more upbeat, appearing with a tray of margaritas. Yes, even in moments of loss. His heart is still in Hawaii. And so with hypocritical, lying, two-faced, worst prime minister in my lifetime, Scott Morrison stepping down, I know what you're asking. Is there going to be any comedy in the leadership of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese? Well, I'll let the clips speak for themselves. What we see is a foreign policy failure on our doorstep. The bloke's a tool. This has been fully costed by the parliamentary bids. This government couldn't run a choco vine up a back fence. And as Scott Morrison, we'll, we'll meet them on the beaches, we'll meet them on the phone hookups. That's his idea of war footing. In America, they devote a rock formation to their presidents at Mount Rushmore. If they were going to... Ma- devote a rock formation to this mob that'll be called the Bungle Bungles. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right, joining me now on News Fighters is one of the authors of the great new book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. Uh, joining me now is Tom Greenwell. Um, Tom, it's a fascinating book. It's kind of a real-life horror story detailing the, the history of school funding in, in Australia and why it's kind of evolved but evolved badly and keeps getting stuffed up is that a is that a fair uh, is that a fair description yeah i think that's i think that's absolutely fair i mean if you take the situation we're in now you know the gonski report 10 years ago said we need to spend our um we need to spend smarter we need mm. to allocate school funding according to need yes and that would, 
needs-based, you know. So um, just a reminder for everyone out there, what that meant is a baseline per student amount for everyone, and then there would be additional funding loadings reflecting categories of disadvantage, whether it's um, low, low income, whether it's disability, indigeneity, low English proficiency, regional or, or remote location. Um, and, and what the review said is, you know, the 75% of the additional funding should go to public schools, reflecting the fact that that's where the overwhelming amount of disadvantage is. Mm. Um, what has happened instead is that funding has increased five times as fast to um, the private sectors as it has to the public sector. To the point where in 2018, the ABC could report that one third of non-government schools receive more taxpayer funding than at least half of comparable public schools. Wow. You know, and that is, there's a, this is a really complicated topic. You know, we all have um, views about it and we bring lots of different, you know, the, the deepest values, right? That's how mm. we feel about equality, freedom and all that. And yep. It's really complicated. I get it. But nobody out there actually says uh, private schools should receive more taxpayer funding than public schools. But mm. somehow that's what we're doing in an awful lot of cases. So um, you're dead right. This is uh, a bit of a horror story. And what's your background in terms of what made you want to write the book? You just uh, think this is an issue that we need to be, that's been forgotten about, we need to talk about more? So, so yeah, I started teaching a few years before the Gonski Review. Mm. Um, but I guess when the Gonski Review came along, I was, you know, on a steep learning curve professionally, but at that point where I was also increasingly conscious that there are a whole lot of systemic issues that were probably making my job harder and certainly making the job of a lot of my colleagues out there across the country harder. Mm. And, and you know, I, I got swept up in the process of the Gonski Review and the optimism of it. Um, my school was one of 6,000 public schools across the country that made a submission to the Gonski Review. And, um, you know, it felt like a, a really consultative, thorough, methodical process. And then it came up with this report, which seemed to transcend a lot of the um, sector, you know, the traditional hostility between the sectors. Mm. And even with, um, even got some significant um, bipartisan support. You think about particularly mm. the New South Wales coalition government of Barry O'Farrell and the Nationals Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli, um, supporting Gonski. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it felt like a breakthrough. And so um, I was very much, you know, personally involved in that optimism. And, um, uh, and, and I guess a major vehicle of that for me was um, my involvement in the teachers union, the Australian Education Union, whom I, um, I worked for for a few years. Uh, and, and, um, and, you know, so um, I, I remain a teacher now, but I also write on education issues. Um, and, and as I was saying, I, I, given my personal involvement and commitment to this issue, it was something at this point that I felt we need to come back to. Mm. So I reached out to um, a guy called Chris Bonner, who's um, a retired school principal in Sydney and um, is a wonderful writer on education. He's written a couple of great books with Jane Caro and um, I really admired his work and I kind of put this idea to him and um, very happily he um, he uh, he agreed to it and um, so that's how we that's how waiting for Gonski came about. 
And it kind of all goes back to, to, to John Howard. He, correct me if I'm wrong, ever since him, private schools have been receiving more funding. Um, is that correct? Uh, per yeah. student than, than public schools, uh, or it's been increasing. Before Gonski, it was already coming off uh, uh, high, uh, large amounts of funding going to private schools, and, and it's kind of got worse in the last 10 years, correct? Gosh, where do we start the story? Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, I think the, the thing to remember is um, historically, uh, you know, for a century, you know, from the end of the 19th century for, um, until the introduction of state aid, in the 1970s, we had this Catholic system that was really underfunded, mm. um, where which was mostly populated by you know kids from Irish Catholic backgrounds who are pretty working class. Um, so you had a very disadvantaged um, Catholic sector, particularly. Mm. State aid is introduced in the late 60s and early 70s, um, largely to address that injustice. But um, it was introduced without thinking about, okay, so we're providing taxpayer funding to these schools. Are there going to be some commensurate public obligations about maybe your fees are regulated, maybe um, the way you enrol students is regulated and so on? And what happened over the subsequent half century is that the amount of state aid gradually crept up and up to these schools where we got to the point you know, as I was referring to before, that many non-government schools uh, are public schools in the, in the level of funding they receive. Mm. They receive just as much public funding as a public school in similar circumstances. Mm. And, and look, to your question, you're absolutely right that in that trajectory over the last half century, the Howard government played a decisive role because they amped up the funding to non-government schools. I mean, it doubled. Uh, wow. So by the end of the Howard government, you had a situation where Commonwealth funding, um, over two-thirds of that, was going to um, non-government schools. Remember, only a third of students are in non-government schools. Yep. Um, and just a third of Commonwealth funding was going to, to public schools. Uh, so there was a massive, massive um, investment of Commonwealth government funding in private schools. And um, that's helped create this situation today where, um, you know, most private schools have a very significant resource advantage over public schools and they enrol um, much more privileged kids on average. There's huge diversity, of course. But Yeah, you only need to drive past your local private school and then your local public school to even see that difference, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know... I mean, we look at this in the book, but pretty much every town you go to, you know, for instance, um, the Gonski panel went to Alice Springs. Mm. And what you find there is, you know, um, public schools, both primary and secondary, which have an overwhelming majority of really disadvantaged kids, mostly Indigenous kids. Mm. And then you go, you know, just a few minutes drive away and there's a Catholic school um, not the not the highest fees in the world by any means, but enough to mean that it's prohibitive um, for a lot of people in that community. And there's much fewer Indigenous kids at the Catholic school, uh, much fewer disadvantaged kids generally. Mm. And then and then you have and it's the classic hierarchy across Australia. There's a high fee independent school mm. where the, the student profile is, is even more privileged. So what our school policy has really created in Australia in every town and suburb is a kind of socioeconomic hierarchy. And, and just to be really mm. clear about this, um, 
we have the fourth most segregated school system in the OECD. Mm-hmm. Our schools are more segregated than in Russia or in Tunisia. Wow. And what that tells us is, of course, location matters and there are disadvantaged suburbs and towns, of course. But our education policy, public policy settings are um, really exacerbating the effect of location and driving disadvantaged kids into the same schools as each other. And the great thing your book talks about is um, peer effects and it talks about how having these different tiered, these different systems kind of drive inequality. It's quite fascinating. And our system just increases inequality and no political party kind of wants to go near this. Gonski tried to address that, right, but it didn't really have – it was kind of hobbled by its – um by what uh, Gillard uh, the, the t- told them to do in terms of um, right. in terms of not taking any funding away from any schools, correct? Right, right. Yeah. So let's break this down. I mean, mm. I think when we think about Gonski, we mm. think about money, of course, yes. right? Yeah. Um, is that how we allocate money to schools? But here's the thing, and the Gonski report showed this. You know, one of the most important resources in any school are the kids. Right. As a teacher, I think all teachers out there will get this right. If you have a class full of, um, you know, high performing, motivated kids from families who really value education, Mm. um, not only is that a lot easier task than other contexts, those kids feed off each other. There's a kind of a a competitive spirit. Um, There's they bring a hold of background knowledge. And so the point here is, is that learning of any one student is heavily affected by the other students in their cohort. And so going back to what we said about concentrations of disadvantage before, if you take a disadvantaged kid and you stick them in a school with lots of other disadvantaged kids, which is exactly what we're doing, Mm. you are making their educational opportunities um, much, much more narrow and their chances of success much less. And that's the peer effects you're referring to. Mm. And Gonski, one of the outstanding features of the Gonski report is it said, um, it, it, it emphasised the power of peer effects. In fact, it, it pointed to research that said the socioeconomic background of the kids in your class, the other kids in your class, has at least as powerful impact on your learning outcomes as your own family background, your parents' socioeconomic mm-hmm. circumstances. That's how big it is. And, um, and, and, and the thing about Gonski, the report, is it was great in terms of saying we need to allocate the money more sensibly, we need it to be needs-based. But it never got to this deeper question about how education policy settings are driving concentrations of disadvantage in some schools, mm. the, the unregulated fees, the unregulated enrolment practices, mm. the resource, dis- the taxpayer-fueled resource disparities. And that's what's creating these really negative peer effects so that um, uh, even if you get the money right, there's these structural issues which remain unaddressed. Mm. Uh, now, now, the further point uh, which, you, which you alluded to is that even getting the money right has escaped us to this point. You know, mm. as we started out, Gonski said we needed a needs-based sector-blind funding system. What we've done over the last 10 years is the opposite. It's been sector-based and needs-blind. Yeah, well, that was my next point. I mean, 
education and Gonski's kind of taken a back seat uh, with the elevation of Morrison as prime minister and then with COVID. Um, last I heard, Morrison tried to launch this thing called Gonski 2.0 in around uh, 2017, 2018. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Turnbull did. Um, what, what's happened the last few years? Where are we at? Is it just completely being forgotten about? Yeah, look, I, I think the, the where we've got to is um, uh, Morrison – created these, uh, a national school reform agreement a couple of years ago, which um, let the states off the hook in terms of the, their obligation to deliver um, needs-based funding in their schools. So we've now got a situation where public schools, which are overwhelmingly funded by state governments, mm. um, in most jurisdictions they won't reach even 90% of the schooling resource standard, the kind of the needs-based standard Gonski set out, they won't reach that until 2030 um, because the Morrison government has um, really removed any obligation for state governments to increase their funding. So we have ever-escalating Commonwealth government funding, which is mostly going to private yep. schools um, and, and, and often meaning that they're overfunded according to the needs-based standard. Um, and, and public schools continue to be underfunded. And I, I think, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to write this book, Dylan, is that we felt that we were kind of drifting along in a post-Gonski torpor. Mm. People out there kind of had a feeling that Gonski was a great idea. We weren't really sure whether it had been implemented or not implemented or distorted. And, um, and the whole impetus, which, you know, there was a really broad-based national consensus mm. which originally arose up uh, around Gonski. And I think the, one of the most stark illustrations of that is that when Turnbull tried to tack to the centre and differentiate himself from the Abbott government, mm. the issue he chose was school funding and to mm. try and claim the Gonski mantra. Um, but that impetus has really been lost. And so we, you know, we're, we're writing this book in a way to say this is too important to ignore. We've mm. failed um, in a very basic way and we need to, um, we need to attend to this and, and in a sense, um, start again. And uh, given we're in the middle of an election campaign, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think Australia's still sliding in the OECD ratings, correct? Why isn't this a bigger election issue, do you think? It should be huge. Yeah, well, you, you're, you're right. You know, Australian school students are about a year of learning behind where they were in 2000, according to wow. the, uh, these PISA tests. And that's in, you know, reading science, maths and science. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this is, a, 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 and, a, you know, the gap separating disadvantaged and advantaged students is about three years of learning on average. Wow. So it's an acute problem facing our community, and it should be um, absolutely up there in lights as a major election issue. Uh, you know, I, th I think the answer to your question is we know the Albanese opposition is pursuing a small target strategy and you raise school funding and it's a very divisive issue. And, and um, Hit lists, winners and losers, all those all, tropes all come that out stuff. again. Yep, yep. All that stuff. And, look, in fairness to, in fairness to the... Um, opposition to, to Labor, they've got a strong policy to deliver needs-based funding uh, much more fully and much, much more quickly um, than the Morrison government. And um, a change of government would be a huge win for um, 
many, many disadvantaged kids across our community. Um, but uh, so, but but it is very much Labor's very locked into. We're going to deliver more money to all schools, and we're going to make everybody happy, and that's politically understandable. But they don't want to address the fundamental issues that really arose out of the Gonski report about this unlevel playing field where we have very, we've got unregulated fees, very different enrolment practices and obligations and, um, and continuing resource disparities. And so I don't think ultimately, unless we get to that issue, we're really going to solve the problems we face. I mean, really, having uh, having read your book, it feels like the heart, uh, one of the heart or the big issues behind inequality in education is just inequality generally, which I don't think the, either political party want, is. There's a real appetite to tackle. I think petrol prices are a much bigger vote winner. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think what Gonski shows is there's a, certainly an appetite to tackle inequality in as far as delivering needs-based funding. Mm. Um, not, not that we're doing it, but there's certainly been a lot of talk about it and the desire in lar- you know, from large parts of the community and um, you know, political parties to deliver needs-based funding, more funding for disadvantaged kids. Yes, mm. address inequality that way. But what the really hard part of it, right, is what our school system at the moment is doing is effectively creating gated communities, which are mostly populated by um, the children of educated and affluent parents um, and largely exclude disadvantaged kids. Mm. And that is affecting learning outcomes very negatively. And so I don't the, the, the inequality we don't want to address is this exclusion, the mm. idea that maybe we should have more, you know, more um, socioeconomically mixed schools mm. which aren't so exclusive and... Um, and address these concentrations of disadvantage, which are, the, are at the heart of, mm. of the problem in our schools. Mm. Now, personally, growing up, I uh, wound up going to a selective uh, public high school, uh, which I, I I liked and I was a champion of, um, and I felt as it coming from a family which probably couldn't afford to send me to a, a independent school I was a fan of. But your book really makes an argument that this is sucking um, – students um, away from the private system. It's, it's basically entrenching inequality. Is there a solution for, to this? Should should selective schools just be for lower socioeconomic people? Um, or uh, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, has, has got rid of the test, the selective schools test there, I believe. What, what, what do you think we should do with, with selective schools? Yeah, great, great question. So, yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is that the way public systems, particularly in New South Wales, have mm. responded to the unlevel playing field and the competitive dynamic with the mm. private sectors mm. who are better resourced and can pick and choose their students is to become internally selective. Mm. And um, so you have, you know, a, a lot of selective schools, in, particularly in New South Wales, and, and they combine with the private sector to really suck the high-performing mm. Mm. students out of comprehensive public schools, mm. which makes life very, very difficult in those comprehensive schools. That's the problem. I think, you know, um, the, the, we need to be imaginative about the solutions. I mean, for instance, one really smart thing that the New South Wales government is doing, it's got um, 
it's Aurora School, which is for um, gifted and talented students in rural and remote locations who stay within their local public school but can log online mm. uh, for for um, kind of um, extension subjects and so on. So um, it, it's uh, to me, it's it's partly a response to just being geographically isolated, but mm. to me, it also suggests the way that we can try and balance um, a genuine need to. Um, to offer extension for you know really um, gifted students, but to enrate to to retain the kind of inclusive character of our schools. Do, do, what's what's the end result here? Do we need to have a massive overhaul, start from the ground up of the education system, so we don't lose another decade, or or is it just more more tinkering that's going to happen? Well, look, what Chris and I argue for is what we a level playing field, and what we mm. mean by that is that all publicly funded schools would be prohibited from charging fees, all publicly funded schools would be subject to common enrolment regulations um, while allowing for um, non-government schools to retain their special ethos. So if you're you know, a Catholic school, you can pre- preferentially enrol Catholic students. Um, and all publicly funded schools to be funded on a needs basis. Mm. Now, here's the rub though, to, to, to even imagine achieving that, you have to fully publicly fund all schools. I mean, as long as we continually to pu- continue to partially publicly fund some non-government schools, well, they have to charge fees. Yeah. And once you charge fees and parents, one subset of parents are paying fees, well, it engenders an expectation that they're going to get something in return. And the school they're sending their kids to is going to be better resourced than, um, than that's the school down the road. So once you have that user pays element in the system, you're creating a whole imperative that is exactly contradictory to a needs-based outcome. You, um, so, it's, you know, it's kind of understandable once one subset of parents has to pay fees that they don't think things should be needs-based. They think it should reflect, mm. you know, the fact that they've coughed up money out of their own pocket. Um, so we're only going to... Um, we're only going to be able to create a level playing field if we say, look, every school, whether it's state-owned and operated or it's non-government, should be fully publicly funded. Mm. Um, We're not that far away from it. You know, most non-government schools are 90 95%, even 100% publicly funded already in recurrent funding. Um, But once you do that, you say, look, yes, everybody, you know, we if you conscientiously have a conscientious preference about the kind of education you want your child to receive, whether it's a Steiner school, a Montessori school, or a, um, a religious school of one variety or another, um, you're, you're, you should be entitled to that. And there shouldn't be a financial penalty associated with that. But what we won't permit is for some um for taxpayer funding to support some kids have resource advantages over others in similar circumstances in what are effectively gated communities that Mm. exclude um, young people from many parts of the community Um, because that's just arbitrarily preferring it's it's sustaining a kind of elitist system and that's can't be held to be in the public interest and it's really really harming the learning outcomes Mm. of those kids who are, who are excluded 
and, mm. and end up in the comprehensive free schools. Well, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Tom, thanks for your time. The book is Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools, which is out on UNSW Press. Uh, make sure you check out the book um, wherever books are sold, I guess. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Dylan. Alrighty, everyone, that's News Fighters for today. Uh, thanks uh, to my interview subject, Tom Greenwell, for being on uh, back in May. Uh, the book, again, is called Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed at Schools. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, and uh, just a reminder that we're moving and we're going to be on the Irrational Fear podcast feed. Uh, check out irrationalfear.com to sign up and uh, jump on the, their Patreon at patreon.com slash irrationalfear because that's how you can support News Fighters going forward uh don't forget you can also follow me on twitter at dialabolical uh and email me at dylan at newsfighters.com uh, and don't forget hit follow and subscribe and or subscribe on your podcasting app and at youtube at youtube.com slash newsfighters and tell your friends and give us a shout out on social media if you're so inclined and don't forget you can sign up for our free monthly newsletter at newsfighters Com. Uh, come back next week because our classic summer weekly replay will be all about a very famous person who died this year. See if you can guess who it is. See you next week. Keep fighting and bye for now. This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.